All right, so we're doing a little bit of a mini series in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians um, these past few weeks, partially because that's where the lectionary has had us, but also partially because um, we're in a moment where quite obviously we are kind of relaunching, replanting, retooling the church. As we come out of COVID, um, we are trying to um, uh, uh, tune in uh, who we are as a church, what our DNA is, and so forth. Um, fun fact, happy news. Um, we, we believe that we should be able to get upstairs next week. So isn't that great? So that, that still needs to be confirmed. So, you know, I probably shouldn't say anything, but whatever, you know. Um, so, but as we do that, and as we uh, relaunch, retool, so forth, we want to ask the question, um, what, we want to make sure that our vision for Emmanuel matches Jesus's vision for Emmanuel, his vision for the church. Um, uh, we want to constantly ask in this season and in every season of our life as a church, what is Jesus's vision for the church? What is Jesus's vision for the Christian life? And how does the Lord want to take us from where we are to where he wants us to be? That makes sense, right? But here's, here's a problem that kind of floats around. When you look at Jesus's vision for the Christian life as he presents it in scripture, it is regularly, absolutely, outstandingly demanding. Have you noticed that? Um, Jesus, as you read him, he's not interested particularly in a kind of moderate or mild-mannered kind of morality that's just kind of vaguely good but not radical. He, his demands are radical. And sometimes they're so, they seem to be so demanding and so extreme that they might even seem somewhat unreasonable when you look at them. Um, you ever felt that? And if you haven't felt that, if you've never felt like Jesus' demanding seem to be beyond what is normal or reasonable or whatever, then you might, when, we might want to ask ourselves, are we taming Jesus just a little bit? Are we trying to tone him down and tame him to ourselves? So, for instance, think about the Apostle Paul who wrote this reading. Um, the Apostle Paul uh, was, in many respects, he had, you know, he had a great life. He had a great life. Like, he was successful. Everybody thought he was great. Um, he, his career was on, a, was on a growth trajectory. There are all kinds of great things about Paul's life. And then he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, most of those outwardly successful things, most of those outward signs, the, the, you know, the sort of stuff that you want in your life, in your career, most of those things all fell apart and they went away. And many people who had previously respected Paul looked at him as he followed Jesus and said, that guy's got to be out of his mind. And it's, that's implied or hinted at in verses 12 and 13 in our reading. People thought Paul was out of his mind. Following Jesus demanded that Paul lay down himself, his very self, in a very profound way. In fact, he had to lay down almost everything that was previously very, very valuable to him. And it ended up that he, he spent loads of his life in prison. Um, he suffered in a bunch of ways, many of which are at an, a rather acute point when he's writing 2 Corinthians. And at the end, um, he, you know, he died for it. 
And I guess we have to ask the question, do you think Paul, in the end, and halfway through and so forth, thought that following Jesus, was it worth it? It was really demanding. Or to ask it this way, what could possibly make sense of that level of demand when Jesus says, set aside yourself and no longer live for yourself, but live for me? But then here's another piece. If you think about the, Paul's life, um, as demanding as following Jesus was for the Apostle Paul, he spent his life following Jesus, pursuing a remarkably compelling vision for reconciliation. Um, and this is important because Paul lived in a world that was every bit as filled with conflict as our own. Yeah, Paul lived, I've said this before, in a world of hate. And in fact, Paul had been a contributor to all of that before he met Jesus, right? He persecuted Christians, he oppressed people, did terrible things. But then after Paul met Jesus, he spent his life, verse 20, as an ambassador of reconciliation. He spent the rest of his life offering reconciliation to people whom he would otherwise have reason to hate. It's remarkable. And again, it brings up the question, what could possibly motivate the Apostle Paul and us and all of Christianity, what could possibly motivate the Apostle Paul to give up so much for Christ and to spend his life offering reconciliation and in the midst of all of it say, it's all worth it? Like, What, what causes that to happen? Well, look at verse 14 and 15. This is, these two verses are really all, all we're going to get through today says this, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. I want to know what that means. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Everybody say, live for themselves. Okay, no longer do that. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, everybody say, the love of Christ controls us so that we may no longer live for ourselves. You're wonderful. Um, how in the world does that work? That's what I want to know. How does the love of Christ bring us to a place where we no longer want to live for ourselves, but we want to live for Christ? Now, to explain that, I want to point out two views of God's love that cannot ultimately displace self. Two views of God's love that cannot ultimately displace self. And then once we've talked about those two, we'll come to the love of Christ and what makes it so unique. So uniquely capable of dislodging our commitment to self. All right, here we go. First of all, if we tie God's love to our performance, that approach to love is very intuitive, but it cannot displace our commitment to self. Let me explain what I mean. So um, I used to work at a bank, uh, which everybody can giggle at, but um, it was for the most part a good experience. Um, um, and I knew when I worked for the bank that my, uh, my boss liked me uh, almost entirely as a function of my performance. Um, actually, that might be, my, my boss was a good guy, but for the most part, my bank liked me, rewarded me, all that kind of stuff based upon my work. And I tried to work pretty hard and my bank typically treated me actually quite, quite well. The more my bank rewarded me, the more confident I became in myself and in the quality of my work. Now, that makes sense, right? But just mark that. 
The more affirmation I received from my employer, the more Jim's attention was focused upon myself because that reward from the bank was tied to my performance. My performance at the bank was the center of my story and therefore I was the center of my story. If performance is the, is the cause of love or of reward, it amplifies our commitment to self. Now, part of why I'm saying this is that when we talk about God's love, it's very intuitive for us to imagine that God's love is tied to my performance, right? And even if we know that that's officially not supposed to be the case, deep down, it's deep in our souls and it's hard to dislodge. And if we feel that way, if we believe that God's uh, love is tied to my performance, then if I feel like I'm a good person, then I'll think that God loves me. And if I feel like I'm a bad person, then I will think that God doesn't love me. But notice there that if God's love is tied to my performance, then my performance is the center of the story, and therefore I am the center of my story. In either respect, whether I think I'm doing well or whether I think I'm doing poorly, nevertheless, I, it amplifies my focus upon me. Can you see that? And here's the funny thing. Um, if I think I'm doing well, if I think that I perform well, I'll end up being full of myself. If I think I perform badly, I'll end up loathing myself. But in either direction, I'm centered on me. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, well, hang on, okay, fine. But is self-centeredness such a bad thing? Well, think about the people who have most wounded you in your life. And then think about the people whom you have most wounded. And then ask yourself, how much was self-centeredness tied up in both of those realities? Because the Bible uh, ties the idea of sin to the idea of self-centeredness, selfishness. Now, sin is a lot of things, and it's bigger than this, but it is at least, sin is at least when we center ourselves, we decenter God, and inevitably, somebody gets eaten alive in the process. And you can test that in your own life. Again, um, whom have you wounded, and who has wounded you, and how did selfishness tie that all together? Now, keep that in your mind and go back to verses 14 and 15. When the, this unique reconciling love of Jesus Christ controls us, when it takes control, one of the ways you know it's taking root is that we find ourselves no longer living for ourselves. Self gets dislodged and we want to live for Christ. The reconciling love of Christ is unique in that it dislodges self and it recenters Jesus Christ at the core of who we are. But the problem is, as long as I imagine that God's love is tied to my performance, then that idea of love will just exacerbate my selfishness. And this is one of the reasons why so many religious people end up being terribly selfish and hypocrites. So how does Christ's reconciling love unseat our selfishness? Well, before we answer that, I can hear somebody say, okay, Jim, I know that God doesn't love me uh, for the things that I do, but isn't it true that God loves me just for who I am, irrespective of what I do? Now, that one's a lot closer to the truth, but there's still a flaw in it. Um, and I want to be, be careful here 
because it is absolutely true that the Bible teaches that every single human being, from the time we are conceived all the way to death, God gives every human being an intrinsic dignity. And that any offense against that dignity in any person is a sin that God will bring to account one day at the judgment. And yet, while that is true, Christ's reconciling love goes further, much, much further. And one of the reasons this is important is that when I think of, uh, if, if, if my view of God's love stops with the idea that God loves me mainly because there's something inherent in me, then that view of love still doesn't really unseat my selfishness. Um, because it can leave me thinking uh, um, there's something in me that God has to love, and that can end up leading me to a place where God is just kind of background noise. I can assume his love, but it kind of fades into the background, and I'm still left looking for that something in me that is inherently good. And that itself can end up amplifying my selfishness yet again. Now, all of this has been about what Christ's reconciling love is not. Christ's reconciling love is something different from either of those things. Christ, Jesus does not love us for what we've done, our performance. Jesus does not love us simply for something that is in us. None of that explains Christ's reconciling love. Okay, so what does? Well, here's the deal. If you want to grasp Christ's reconciling love, you have to do something that's very strange and utterly foreign to most of us. You have to stop looking for anything good in me, anything good in you. And then you have to turn your eyes away from yourself and look at the cross of Christ. Look at verses 14 and 15. Christ's death is the definition of his love. You see the word died? In those two verses, it happens four times. Why the fixation on Jesus' death? And how does Jesus' death define love? And how does that love uh, unseat our selfishness? Well... In your mind, I'm going to ask you to think about yourself for a second, except instead of looking for something good in yourself, instead of thinking about the good things you've done, and instead of thinking about something inherently good in you, I want you to look for what's worst in yourself. Look for your most selfish acts. Look for those acts that have wounded others. And look at the selfishness that is at the core of much of that. And as you look at that, that'll be the, some of the obvious sins. Now, the bad news is that the Bible says that all of our sin deserves death. Which is like, what in the world? You're kidding me? But, but it, 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 you know, that's extreme. Well, yeah, except hang on. Um, just to use a completely different sphere of thought, um, think about the environmental crisis, right? Um, one of the things that we're afraid of when we think about the environment is we're afraid that um, selfish short-term consumption is going to may well into uh, end, uh, uh, lead to lasting results, right? The fear and the concern is that selfish consumption may end up killing the earth. Am I wrong? Well, the Bible says that self-centered sin kills. It kills our relationship with God, it kills our relationship with others, and it literally destroys bodies. It ruins everything. And because sin kills all that matters most in this world, it therefore deserves death. And this is what's so powerful about the cross of Christ and Christ's utterly unique uh, reconciling love. Because in our text, when Jesus died, he voluntarily became our sin. 
What? It means this, that in a remarkable way, before the beginning of time, God the Father and God the Son hatched a plan. And the plan is summarized in verse 21. In this plan, Jesus voluntarily became sin. What does that mean? Well, it means at least this. It means that Jesus's love does not target anything good in us, either our good deeds or our inherent dignity. There are good things that we've done and we do have inherent dignity, but that's not the target of Jesus's love. Jesus's love targets our worst ugliness, our self-centeredness and our self-absorption and all the vile things that we've done against God and against ourselves and against other people. Jesus targets all of that despite the fact that it deserves death. And Jesus takes that ugly sin and Jesus says to his father, he says, father, according to our plan before the beginning of time, I want you to count all of that sin to my personal record. Despite the fact, it's as if Jesus says to the Father, despite the fact that I never perpetrated any of this sin, nevertheless, I volunteer to have that sin accounted to my ledger. And because that sin is now at my ledger and on my record, I voluntarily die the death that justice demands for it. And then it's as if Jesus says to the Father, and Father, according to our plan before the beginning of time, take my righteousness, take all that is most beautiful about me and add it to the record of all those who will entrust themselves to me. Jesus says, I will become sin in order that they might become my righteousness. Now, whatever comes up for you when you think about that, consider this, Jesus demands an awful lot of his disciples, of his followers. However, All that Jesus demands of his followers pales in comparison with the personal sacrifice that Jesus went through for us. God in Jesus Christ gave all that he is to us without reservation, not because there's anything good in us, but because Jesus sought to overcome all that is bad in us. And now what I want you to see is I want you to see how that view of Christ reconciling love can subvert our selfishness. It unseats ourself. Verse 15, Jesus died so that we could stop living for self and we could start living for Christ. And the point is this, when the cross of Christ really lands in your life, it allows us to be freed from our obsession with ourself in a deep and profound way. It allows Jim for the first time to be able to stop rummaging around Jim's heart, trying to find something good in me, trying to find something worthy of love, something that I've done, something that I am. It allows me to stop looking at me because nothing good I've done will make Jesus love me more and nothing bad I've done will make Jesus love me less. And for the first time in Jim's life, Jim is blessedly irrelevant. I can turn my eyes away from myself. But do you know the minute Jim becomes happily irrelevant, do you know who is ultimately gloriously relevant? Jesus Christ who gave himself for me. See, the cross of Christ decenters self and recenters Christ. And that, friends, is the beginning and the middle and the end of the Christian life. Now, I'm aware that some of us are struggling with the cost of following Jesus. 
And it's always tempting. It's always, there's always something in us that wants to say, wait a second, is following Jesus really as demanding as it sometimes appears? Does it need to be this demanding? Does it need to be this hard? Maybe Jesus doesn't require comprehensive surrender and obedience. And you can identify with that, can't you? And if you were to ask that question to Paul, Paul, what do you think about that? And he would look at you and he would say, of course, yes, it does demand all. Jesus does demand comprehensive and full surrender. Jesus died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. And there's nothing more radical than that. And that call to radical uh, uh, decentering of self and recentering of Jesus, it, it will seem unreasonable and incoherent until you see how Christ gave all that he is for you on the cross. But then when you see that, it'll cause us to respond, Jesus, you gave all that you are for me, and therefore I want to give all that I am to you. Jesus, nothing is off limits. Nothing is off the table. All that I am is yours. And then as you pray that to Jesus Christ, you will be able to see him looking back at you with eyes full of love, limitless love. And he will say, yes, I gave all that I am for you. And now I'm going to teach you how to live for me. And then Jesus will give you his commandments that are dispersed all through the Bible. And as you look again at Jesus's commandments from the cross to the commandments, you will see that the commandments are not unreasonable, but rather they will begin to look to you like a beautiful way to express your love to Christ in the beauty of kind of a sign language of a lived life for Jesus. Let me wrap up with a story about how Christ's reconciling love landed on, on one of my heroes. Um, some of you know that one of my heroes is a guy called Festo Kavindra. Um, he was a young teacher in Uganda, uh, 1939. Um, he, he had decided through his uh, studies that Christianity was crazy. He was an agnostic, kind of an atheist, couldn't quite figure out which one of those he was. Um, and then um, uh, one day his, his sister became a Christian. A bunch of people around him became Christians. It drove him bananas. Um, and, and, and one day his sister embarrassed him and, and he was in a rage and he was planning, um, to, to, to beat her up when she got home. But then before this could happen, he met a friend, well, well, his best friend and his best friend said, Festo, I can't believe it, but I became a Christian too. And Festo was like, you're kidding me. And it really shook him and it shook him to his core. And as he talked to his friend, he began to realize just how selfish he was and just how controlled he was by his own self. And then he began to see all that he had perpetrated against so many. And it began to break him and he went home and he prayed. And this is what happened. When I reached my room, I knelt at my bed, struggling for words to the one in whom I no longer could believe. And finally I cried out, God, if you happen to be there, as my friend says, I am miserable. And if you can do anything to help me, then please do it now. And if I am not too far gone, help. And then what happened in that room? Heaven opened. And in front of me was Jesus. He was real and crucified there for me. And his broken body was hanging upon the cross. And suddenly I knew that it was there because of my badness. It was my badness that had done this to the king of life. And it shook me. And in tears, I thought that I was going to hell. And if he had said in that moment, go, I would have not have complained. Somehow I thought that this would be his duty as all the wretchedness of my life came out. 
And then I saw his eyes full of infinite love, which were looking into my eyes. And he was saying, this is how much I love you, Festo. And I shook my head because I knew that it couldn't be possible. And I said, no, I am your enemy. I am rebellious. I have been hating your people. How can you love me like that? Even today, I do not know the answer to that question. There is no reason in me for his love. But that day, I discovered myself clasped in the father's arms. I was tattered and afraid, just like the younger son who went into the far country and then came to the end of himself. Why should the father who is holy come running to hold me to his heart? I was dirty and desperate and had said and done so much against him. That love was wholly unexpected, but it filled my room and I was convinced. He is the only one who loves the unlovable and embraces the unembraceable. And in spite of all that I was, I knew that I was accepted as a son of the father and whatever Jesus did upon the cross, he had done it for me. And from that moment, Christ's Reconciling love revolutionized his life. In fact, the book where this comes from is called Revolutionary Love. And from that moment, uh, God used him to be one of the greatest agents of reconciliation in Uganda's history. And some of you know I love telling the rest of that story. Ask me. But friends, that's what Jesus wants for our church. That's who we are, we are to be. And it might not be as dramatic as it was for Festo or for Paul, but here's the point. What was acute for Festo, what happened in that moment for Festo needs to become the chronic experience of our life as a church. What I mean is that we must be a church that is so captivated by the reconciling love of Christ that self is continuously decentered and Christ is continually recentered. And we will desire to surrender wholly to him without any reservation. Jesus' love really is good. I promise you that's true. And for some of us, it's time to opt in. Some of us uh, uh, need to get to have that moment where we, where we cease considering and we begin surrendering. And for others of us, um, we're right in the middle of feeling the costliness of obedience, to which I say, don't give up. Look from the costliness that you feel to the cross upon which Christ displays his love. And there Christ will allure you again and renew you. And as the cross of Christ leads us deeper into surrender, he will also make us ambassadors of reconciliation. And that's where we get to pick up the story next week. Amen? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.